Welcome to Behavioral Health in the New Normal, a podcast developed by Prestige Community Resources, aimed at bringing healing back to our community through knowledge, expert advice, and positive messaging. The show is a joint venture between the Department of Behavioral Health and Prestige Community Resources, funded by SAMHSA in response to the challenges currently impacting our communities. Hosted by Paul Wells Sr., who uses over 30 years of extensive clinical social work experience to conduct insightful interviews with experts and professionals on a wide range of topics that impact the Washington, D.C. community. From behavioral health crisis to education to financial hardship and anything in between, this show will provide information and insights that will surely make a difference in your life. Welcome, everyone, to the weekly podcast offered by Prestige Community Resources. I am so excited today to introduce what I believe is an expert in the field of community teaching, or advocacy, support, and direct services. Let me welcome Dr. Nancy B. Butler. Dr. Butler, welcome to the, to the show today. Thank you very much. I'm privileged to be here. We're so glad to have you. And the topic today, we're going to really focus on uh, the certification process uh, for addictions counselors. Uh, and there is a process of training and preparation that we're going to thoroughly review. And okay. we're going to talk a lot about where do these professionals, what professional settings do they eventually um, get an opportunity to provide their services. But before we go further, let me just briefly tell the audience that Dr. Butler is currently working part-time as the director of the Catholic Charities Institute Professional Counseling Education Program. I believe the short way to say that is PEPS, PSEP? PSEP, yeah. PSEP, okay. Dr. Butler has been with Catholic Charities since 2000, where she was, was responsible for the family centers in the District of Columbia. Previously, from 1986 to 1997, she was the program director for the Department of Psychiatry at Washington Hospital Center. And she's also founded the Therapeutic Recreation Department at the Washington Hospital Center's Department of Psychiatry in 1980. I tell you, family, Dr. Butler has held part-time and full-time teaching posts at the George Washington University, the University of Maryland, West Virginia, Westland College, Prince George's Community College, and she has consulted with many, many uh, community-based uh, area mental health facilities and substance abuse treatment programs. So we welcome you, Dr. Butler, to this important discussion. We want to really understand how the provision of substance abuse services is being um, operationalized in the District of Columbia. So could you, Dr. Butler, for the benefit of our audience, tell us a little bit about yourself, both personally and professionally. When we start personally, where were you born? Where? Oh, my goodness. Yes. That was a long time ago. I was born in a, a little town in Ohio, Ada, Ohio. Ada, Ohio. And, yes. Okay. Uh-huh. And I came out here in 1962. So I really feel like I'm more of a, a D.C. native than an Ohio one, although one can never, I mean, one's roots are very important. Absolutely. So, Yeah. Yeah. I'm originally, I'm a native of Buffalo, New York, and but I've been here longer than I grew up early in Buffalo, New York, and so I really feel like a Washingtonian. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so you grew up in Ohio, and you, you migrated here to um, the DMV area, and 
what moved you to uh, move here? To well, I was married at the time and oh, I had okay. little children and my husband got a job with the federal government. So that's why we moved. <laughs> okay. 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 And so when you moved here, what was the first experience professionally that you um, encountered? Well, that probably didn't happen until after that, you know, things changed and my became not unmarried. And uh, then I decided to, I had a degree in in fine arts and I needed to find a way to make money and support my children. So I ended up at the University of Maryland talking with um, Dr. Humphrey, who was no longer with us. But anyway, he showed me that the background in art was very important to recreational therapy. And then that's what started my journey. And I think in 1978, I started working in recreational therapy, started studying before that. And I ended up getting my doctorate in that. But the recreational therapy path took me from Walter Reed Army Medical Center. I actually worked in psychiatry there for part-time as a rec therapist to the Washington Hospital Center where they needed somebody to start a program back in 1980. This was at the beginning of treatment for substance abuse. It hadn't been around very long. Right. So I started the program there and we, they gave us uh, support to build a staff. I had a wonderful staff. Mm -hmm. And from there, I, I continued studying recreational therapy because I was on the doctoral path. Right. But through that, it, it led me to teaching at George Washington University in rec therapy and the University of Maryland. And then I ended up back at the hospital center as a program director. So I don't really consider myself an expert in anything except organizing and planning and pulling things together. And can you I tell think- us? Can you tell us a little more? What is recreational therapy? What what is that exactly? Well, recreational therapy has been around for since the 60s. It's a therapy that uses activities as and gets people involved in activities, either to learn new activities, uh, just to get them to participate and socialize to help them practice the activities they may have forgotten about. But the activities range from music and art to sports and reading, anything, anything you can think about doing in your leisure time. Yeah. And um, I learned how important it was to substance abuse people in recovery from substance abuse, because using substances takes a huge amount of someone's time. They have to figure out how to get the money, how to get it, and then to use it. And that they end up with a, a group and that consumes all their time. And so when they people decide that they want to become sober, it's difficult because they don't always know how to spend their free time. So that's what we did at the hospital center. We also worked with people who had uh, mental health disorders there, too. Yeah, I've seen it practiced with both groups uh, with great success, uh, substance users, as well as those with persistent and chronic mental illness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really useful. And when integrated into interdisciplinary design, it really um, has added value. So you mentioned that you've applied recreational therapy in a substance use disorder context. Mm-hmm. And you talked about how you've introduced uh, life skills and you've used different intervention strategies to assist the person who's recovering with learning different ways of socializing and engaging with life without using drugs. That's right. What are some of those methods you've taught that 
clients are taught during recreational therapy? Well, I think the basis was that there's something in rec therapy called leisure education. And I used mm -hmm. to run groups with people after they had become back in the 80s. We detox was a 30 day period. So people were there for quite a while. Right. And so after when people after initial detoxification, when people could start engaging, we started them in what we called leisure education groups. And then we just used from where they were. That's a basic tenant to start with where people are. And one thing they, they understood was getting high. And so we talked about, well, what does getting high mean? Mm -hmm. It means that you feel better. Uh, you're not thinking about your problems. Mm -hmm. You're enjoying yourself. And so we said, well, what other times were you able to get these same feelings? And inevitably, they always led back to favorite leisure activities, listening yeah. to music, uh, dancing, um, playing sports. And then what we, we actually conducted activities at the hospital. At that time, they had a huge ballroom. <laughs> we used to hold dances there. We'd get various groups to come in. And, and so people could experience um, having a good time without a substance right there. And so that was our introduction. And then um, as the field has evolved, a lot of rec therapists get involved with community reintegration, helping people mm. to identify resources in the community yes. for um, ongoing leisure activities. You referenced earlier that substance use disorder treatment has changed so much over the years. Managed care has disrupted clearly the length of time and how we deliver the service. I too remember when detox was 30 days. I remember when residential treatment could be up to two years. Absolutely. Right? It was long-term. And I think that the literature shows the longer you're engaged in treatment, the better the outcome. And we know that the, the most prepared practitioner in a substance use disorder program is the addictions counselor. Mm -hmm. uh, they're specially trained. Many of them come with their own recovery experience. Uh, and if equipped properly, can be very impactful and really offer um, an opportunity for the consumers to, to learn some recovery skills. How does someone in the District of Columbia become an addictions counselor? What are the steps? Okay, there are, we talk about four major steps. The first one is they have to have any, the certification is governed by the DC Department of Health. And so they have a very explicit process that you go through and anyway, their requirements are, the first requirement is that you have at least an associate's degree in a human service field. This okay. could be psych, it could be nursing, it could be uh, criminal justice, et cetera. And uh, Dr. Butler, if I, if I can interrupt, I don't believe that was always the case, though. I think it wasn't always right, the case. You did, it, a, a degree was not required. Is that, that's right. A degree, why did, a degree why did wasn't they, required until 2010. And why did they insert that requirement in the regs? Well, I think there was a lot of feeling that uh, people were coming from their own experiential background and they didn't have a lot of academic training and they felt like the, the field needed to be more professionalized. Okay. So that was the first step. And uh, it probably, I'm sure the, that educational requirement may actually increase in sometime in the future. I don't know when, I'm not on the board. But anyway, that's a beginning step. You must have an AA degree. However, to get into our program at Catholic Charities, you only need to have at least a GED. 
And we do have a contract with the Catholic University Metropolitan School mm. of Professional Studies. Okay. They actually will give our graduates a 40% discount in tuition. And they can, they've can they put together um, a special AA degree just for our graduates to go and take at Catholic University. So there is help mm -hmm. um, for, with that. So we do get many people who, were start, who start with us with just a GED and then they go on through. But anyway, that's the first basic requirement for, for the D.C. Department of Health is that AA degree. And you also need special training in substance abuse, addiction-specific coursework. There's very few places in college and university settings can you get that. And that's where we come in because our classes are all very addiction-specific, taught by people who have had many years of experience in delivering services and what are, what are some of those classes that they could uh, apply for? Um, the classes that, that are included in our program are things like, I'm going to just going to kind of read them off because there's a lot. I'm going to read a few. Okay. Uh, ethics and professional development. That's a really that's a big, important very part. Important. Absolutely. Rules and regulations, understanding federal rules and regulations, signs and symptoms of substance, substance use disorders, human development, mental health disorders and co-occurring disorders. We just finished with that segment um, right now. Yeah. The effects of trauma, we're on, there's more and more understanding about how trauma is the basis for many substance use disorders as well as mental, mental disorders. The pharmacology of addictive drugs, opioid, the opioid crisis and counseling in, uh, implications. Very relevant, yes. They learn counseling theories, micro-counseling skills, they learn skills for individual and group counseling, assessment, uh, infectious diseases, cross-cultural counseling, 12-step programs, codependency, crisis intervention, relapse prevention, clinical writing skills, okay. the addictions in the criminal justice system, mm -hmm. the 12 core functions of addictions counseling, and finally, we also assist them with their um, internships. Very comprehensive, very relevant modules. It is. There. How long yes. does the training generally take if I focused on it, you know, full time and really was committed yeah. to it? How long okay. would that take? We offer it in six and a half month sessions and we meet three times a week. So it's very, yeah. it's a very intensive six yes, months. Yes, absolutely. And now during the, the pandemic, I imagine classes are offered through uh, remotely. Absolutely. They're all through Zoom, which okay. has really worked out quite well. It's yeah. not the same, though. There are many limitations to that. We can't do live demos and counseling practice, you know, like we can in the classroom. But um, it's amazing how well it has worked, though. Is there an internship requirement? Do clients have to go in the field and, and be exposed mm -hmm. under supervision yeah. as a part now, of the learning? That would be the third step after training and education would be the third step would be an internship. If you're going for a CAC level one, mm -hmm. it's a 500 hours and CAC two is 180 and uh, CAC, anyone with a bachelor's degree or better can qualify for the CAC two. Okay. Very good. So the differences between a certified addictions counselor level one versus level two is what again? Could you repeat that? It's the uh, educational degree education. of education. Okay. The amount does, of it, does it give the practitioner any more independence or flexibility around how to practice? Does the level drive how independently you can provide the service? 
Um, in some cases, yes. In some cases, uh, CAC1s um, work under the supervision of a CAC2, or in some cases, and others, no. It's, it really is, is a combination of training and experience, direct experience in addictions counseling. So I imagine a, a level one is unable to supervise, provide direct supervision. Is that correct? Is That's that correct. Okay. That's correct. Okay. Right. So we got step one, two, three. What's step four in the process? This, the fourth step is the um, examination. Mm. Again, it's um, done through the D.C. Department of Health, and it's uh, a, a NADAC exam. NADAC stands for the National Association of Alcohol and Drug Addiction Counselors. And it's quite a challenging exam. Mm-hmm. So we give them ample material to study for the exam. And then that combined with actually putting things into practice through their internship um, should equip people to pass the exam. We always, always, always recommend additional study, though. They need to form study groups and really study the material thoroughly before they go into that exam. I imagine the exam is multiple choice. How many questions about? Oh, you know, I don't really know the number of questions. I'd have to ask one of my experts. I have a couple of people. I think I understand that they allow for three hours of testing time. So that's a lot of questions. I think so. I think, and I know, I'm pretty sure it's at least 120, but I'm not sure. Yeah, okay. And they're not easy. (laughs) Well, absolutely. So what is the pass-fail rate for the first attempt? Do you have any sense of how well (laughs) first-timers Well, it really depends on the person. We've had students, our gra- some of our graduates have passed it on the first time and mm-hmm. other people have taken two or three times. We've actually um, had people who graduated from school and had experience in other areas come to us just to take our classes because they failed the class two or three times, yeah. they passed two or three times and they needed to get more in, or direct information on addictions. But I don't know the exact rate. I would have to check with the D.C. Department of Health. Right. I I know for those who have shared with me that they've taken and passed the exam, they talk that the the biggest barrier to um, getting a good grade is really test anxiety. Um, Yeah. That being just in a relaxed state, because it's so important. You've gone through this process. you've, You've spent money and time. You've made a commitment. And the last piece the puzzle, as you were, it's just you got to pass the exam because without the exam, you can't practice. Is that right? That's right. You cannot practice as a CAC in the District of Columbia unless you have that certification, which yeah. you can't get unless you pass that exam. Yeah. So it's so important to so many. Now, Dr. Butler, can you tell us the difference between a license to practice and a certification of practice? Because we know the counseling board that you can become licensed as a licensed practice. Uh, professional counselor you can but yeah. there is not there's no licensure does not exist for addictions counselors as as yet the highest level of professional recognition you can get is certification right now okay and is there a reason for that and what's, what can we expect in the future around licensure for addictions counselors I imagine, I think the, the reason for that is the level of education. Most people who get licensure um, have to be prepared at least the master's level, right. if not the, the doctoral level to get that licensure. Yeah. So it's when they increase the requirements for education that might, that might make that possible. So I imagine that the certification provides or offers the agency within the agency that, where they work some limitations because, well, let me ask. 
can you build directly a managed care plans for work conducted by a certified addictions counselors? Not to my knowledge. It's usually built into the room rate or the, the rate of charges. Yeah, not to my knowledge. I'm not saying it doesn't occur, but I don't know. Right. So I've had the privilege of managing outpatient drug treatment programs. I've done some inpatient work as well. And I've had treatment team members that are primarily certified addictions counselors or with a sprinkle of social workers and licensed professional counselors. And I've had a mixture of teams with experience of their own recovery, uh, meaning I know at one time, one of my treatment teams, half of the staff were also in recovery. What are your thoughts on, on those with a, an established, confirmed recovery history providing the service? Are, are there some challenges that one can expect in their learning and in their application of the service? I, that's kind of an ongoing discussion within the field. You know, I don't think, you know, it's just like when you look at uh, another somebody, a medical doctor can provide services for diabetes, for instance, and he not have diabetes himself. Right. So it's very possible for people in addictions counseling not to have had the illness themselves, but mm. to be able to provide services. However, there is something to be said for people who are in recovery, because there are many things that they spot that people who haven't been there don't. I would agree. <laughs> so, they, have, yeah. they, they have some insights that um, just were afforded them through their experience. What, what I think is important from my perspective is that they don't rely on self-disclosure when they're providing professional care. And there are times where I've seen certified addictions counselors with some history of recovery who will be too, um, will rely too heavily on their own personal stories. And that's where it becomes for me problematic because if you identify too much in the struggle, you can't create that therapeutic distance you need to really be the expert in the room. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, I totally agree. And also your personal path to recovery, nobody's path to recovery is the same. That's right. And that used to be a hallmark of addiction counseling, right. sharing that. And I think that's one reason they upgraded the professional standards for people to do that. In fact, in our courses, we urge students, you know, if sometimes it will, if people have needs and they might be in some treatment themselves and they want to bring it forth to the class. And we encourage them not to do that because we're here to learn to counsel others, not to get counseling ourselves. So. And so I imagine one of the things you support in their training is that they, the student, continue uh, to engage in their supports. And Absolutely. Ability in their own right. We want to be healthy vessels when we're, we're helping others restore their lives and move on to uh, more favorable situations. Does the licensure board, what do they do if there are ethical reports or or complaints made on behalf of a certified addictions counselor. What's the response from the board when they hear of such I, You know, I'm not sure of their exact procedure, but I do know that they closely examine it. I think they bring people in to discuss um, the, the issues with them. And um, in some cases, the person loses their certification yeah. for a time at least. And um, they become penalized, but they, after that period of prescribed time and whatever else need, they need to do, they can usually regret, regain their certification. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure you understand that uh, in District of Columbia now, everything 
related to substance use disorder programs is closely monitored, certified, and regulated by the Department of Behavioral Health. And so these independent agencies that used to kind of work on their own rhythm and philosophy and theoretical understanding now have to kind of assimilate and kind of do it one way. One of the advantages, though, in, in this current context is the certified addictions counselor can cover a lot of clinical territory under the regulations. They can do individual counseling. They can do group counseling. Mm-hmm. They can participate in treatment plan development. Mm-hmm. They're vested with the privilege of also, you know, supporting um, clinical care coordination and crisis intervention. They have a lot of uh, or some increased autonomy to work within this design. That's good news, huh? Yes, it is. Well, actually, I think they always did sort of work in those roles. They may not, may not have been as clearly defined as they are now. Mm-hmm. Good to know. Now, listen, this pandemic, we can't end this discussion without describing the impact it has had on treatment and treatment providers. What's your take on things? What's going on there in the community with substance use counseling? Yeah, it, it's difficult. You know, we talk about the digital divide. So there are folks in our community who have increased issues with substance use and they don't have the resources to be able to get treatment virtually. Right. Um, and there are, I've talked to many providers, they're doing a lot of counseling virtually on Zoom. And I actually think that that's probably maybe added a, a dimension to the treatment that on the positive side, mm-hmm. but substance abuse recovery requires ongoing support and contact, especially in the 12 step meetings. And so that this is all of that. A lot of the support system for sobriety has fallen away. It sure, and, has. Uh, yeah. it sure has. One of the, uh, the favorite modalities is group work and mm-hmm. it's hard to offer group therapy through these platforms, these remote platforms, Zoom and Duo. And also, you know, interesting enough, when I compare the profiles of a substance use disorder client against a chronically mentally ill client or those suffering with emotional distress, many of the substance use disorder clients present with no access to technology. They don't even have a phone. They don't have a computer. They don't have a residence where you can even sit at the desk. And so... Trying to, that is a real barrier because if telemedicine is the primary method of contact and outreach and our substance use consumers don't have the tool, the telephone, that's right. they don't have access. That, that means that we have, they they're can't, out there. That's they're right. just out there by themselves. Yeah. What do you think about AA and NA? Now you have to, in the District of Columbia, actually, they stopped open meetings. You can't actually attend a meeting because of that's this 10-person right. limit. Yeah. Uh, that they've imposed. So I know a lot of folks are, are benefiting from going on Zoom and going to A meetings mm-hmm. locally and nationally. Uh, they are. Mm-hmm. How's that experience? What have you heard about that experience? Or well, I actually haven't heard that much. I've sort of been in quarantine and lockdown myself. Yeah, <laughs> I have a, I, yeah, I have a, a um, stepson who's a quadriplegic. And so Ooh. together we're really We've really had a lot of work to do. Yes. But anyway, so I haven't actually been out there so to hear, unfortunately. But but again, the number one requirement is I have to have the tool, have to have a computer or a phone, the computer in order to phone, attend a meeting. The internet, 
Absolutely. And there's so many people out there who don't, and there's so many additional stresses brought on by the pandemic. Oh, yes. Yeah. You know, I'm an old school therapist, so I, I like to provide the service with the client in the room with me. I like mm-hmm. to feel Absolutely. your presence, make that physical connection with you. That is lost in telemedicine. Uh, right. And so the engagement in the front end of treatment is much more difficult because you use the relational piece to draw people further into the treatment course. I know. Uh, and what I'm finding is for that first phase of recovery, inpatient and outpatient, it's more difficult to get that therapeutic alliance and get them committed to the process That's right. because the contacts are infrequent. Mm-hmm. We don't see them for the same duration of time. You know, SUD groups are, could be three groups in a day for, for an hour each. Mm-hmm. Telemedicine is one hour session and that's, that's all you're going to get today. A few times a week. Even. A few times a week, right, yeah. at best. Yeah. And we've lost the value of having others in the room oh, witnessing yeah. the process and supporting the process. That's right. And so our compliance rates, as I understand it, just my experience, have been significantly impacted during this time that, yeah, the interest is there, the need is increased, the request for services uh, hasn't changed much, mm-hmm. but the engagement seems to have dwindled a little bit because now I have to go through technology to receive the service. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me a little bit more before we conclude about the Catholic Charities Institute uh, where you've worked since 2000. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. Well, I actually retired from Catholic Charities in 2006. Oh, okay. I've continued contracting with them to run this program. And it's really interesting that this program, we never really advertise it. I will send a flyer out Mm -hmm. um, prior to starting another program. And it's sort of word of mouth and recommendations. I also want to add that a lot of people who take our classes, they don't intend to get certified. They want the knowledge to help them connect with their consumers wherever they may work. So there may we've had ministers, we've yeah. had physicians, we've had psychiatrists, we've had social workers, and people who and other people who work in agencies who want the knowledge and not necessarily the certification. So anyway, it, it's open to a wide range of people. Yes, I've been requested to do trainings at various churches in the area, and there's been tremendous um, feedback from the congregations. The education has definitely helped the ministries and the pastors and the pulpit. And I think the leaders of the church have learned so much about having sensitivity and awareness around how to better support those who are suffering with mental illness and substance abuse. Mm -hmm. It was my last engagement in a church context. I asked the congregation with the pastor present, how many people had used substances. And there were too many hands up in the air for, the, I think, the pastor to even tolerate. Right. And what's interesting is he had never asked the question. No one ever talked about it. Yeah. I asked the same question around, uh, does, who's had the experience with mental health services, who's received treatment, who's known someone in their family? Hands went up. And the pastor was yeah. just astonished. And again, I think he was surprised because he didn't uh, feel comfortable even asking the question. Yeah. And as a result now, since the congregation gave them gave permission to acknowledge that it's real and happens in this church, now he has support groups, he has A meetings, and uh, he's gone on to get some additional training. So he, in his pastoral counseling sessions, he can um, really provide uh, some information, that's, that's some practical information. Yeah. 
that will help guide their recovery. Yes. Yeah. 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 So the church, the mosque, the masjids, they all have a role in this. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what I'm hearing you say is that folks are coming from other disciplines into your training program to, to get information. To get information and to to know how to work with people who have these disorders. Yes. So I want to end with you giving us some words of encouragement. Can we be optimistic about substance abuse treatment? And can you share some good thoughts about how we're preparing clinicians to work in the field? Well, I'm hoping that our new administration may be more supportive of substance abuse services. I, I also think, hope that just the stresses and strains and, uh, of the pandemic has brought more awareness of substance abuse issues. Mm -hmm. And speaking of families, I don't think there's a family out there who hasn't been touched by substance abuse in the family, within the family somewhere. So as people become armed to, do, to help those who have substance use disorders, I think that that's a very encouraging time, as a very encouraging thing. Mm -hmm. As we prepare more people to help, there'll be more help available. Yeah, <laughs> so I can't speak to, I know it, I don't know how encouraging I can be about getting it in treatment and getting third party payment for it, but it, and also the opportunity for inpatient and outpatient treatment has shrunk, especially Perhaps. during this time. So I'm really hoping there'll be support to open more programs or reopen them and yeah. to find other avenues as well. Yeah. yeah, the resources, we have to really consider that and, and try to ensure that access and capacity are equivalent to the need. I think in the district right now, you can probably get a 30-day residential placement pretty readily. I mean, you probably can get that as a walk-in. But to get a 90-day placement is very, very difficult. And so, yeah. but I'm encouraged that at least the system is working. People can still receive assessments and be referred to inpatient and outpatient services. Detox services are still available, particularly at PIW, which is the institution that many people prefer to go for detox. Mm -hmm. So treatment is available. And just because we have the pandemic and we have all, all these other limitations, People who are interested in getting clean and sober still have that opportunity. If they really, yes, if they if, really want they, to. Right. As a matter of fact, Dr. Butler, they tell me that treatment doesn't begin until the client wants it. That's correct. They must have the desire. And sometimes the desire doesn't even kick in until after they've gotten into treatment. It doesn't kick in until then. And maybe they have to be in treatment many times before it kicks in. Right. You're absolutely we don't right. ever give up. We don't ever give up hope. No, no. I think the literature says that most people have to encounter five to six treatment episodes before they finally get it right. Uh, that does not mean episode one, two, three were failures. Not at all. It means and it would suggest that one, two and three were necessary to leverage an opportunity for them to get it in the fifth, yeah. sixth experience. Yeah. This, this has been a, a wonderful time. Clearly, you understand treatment. You understand training. You understand the needs for the service. How can people reach out to you? People, I'm sure people are going to want to know and want to talk to you more. Where can we contact you? Well, the best way right now to contact me, of course, is by email. Mm -hmm. Or you can call my, my number at Catholic Charities. It's 202-271-4121. Okay. okay, that's 202-271-4121. Uh -huh. Okay. Yes. 
And your email address? My email address. That's actually the best way to get me because um, I can pick that up anytime. It's Nancy, N-A-N-C-Y mm-hmm. dot Butler, B-U-T-L-E-R at C-C dash D-C dot org. Okay. I'll repeat that. It's Nancy dot Butler at C-C dash D-C dot org. Yes. Okay. Well, Dr. Butler, we've appreciated the time with you. We're honored to spend this quality time with you. We wish you well. Uh, We thank you for your service. For those out in the community who are listening to this podcast, if you want more information regarding Prestige, you can uh, visit our website at prestigecommunityresources.org. Finally, I want to just thank everyone for joining this episode and being with us today. It has been my pleasure to host. And until next time, please stay safe, stay well. Hey, and why don't we add, stay clean and sober. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.